0: Welcome back to another episode of Freed From Feminism. My name is Teresa, and my co host Beth is actually not with us this episode, very sadly. She is uh, moving currently with her family, and so she is very well occupied um, doing other things uh, these next few weeks. So, unfortunately, it's just me today. I apologize to everyone in advance. Uh, because I know that um, I will miss her greatly, and I know you will too. Um, But today we have a wonderful guest in Dr. Scott Yenner. I will just let him talk about himself uh, at first, and then we're going to get into some really interesting conversation about um, the data behind why feminism doesn't seem to be working. It's very, very interesting. Um, Not a lot of literature out there talks about um, cold, hard facts demonstrating how feminism is making us unhappy. People are perhaps a little bit too scared to talk about it, uh, or they're just not interested in, in proving that. Um, And then he has a really beautiful new book called The Recovery of Family Life, Exposing the Limits of Modern Ideologies, which I hope he'll uh, talk about a little bit um, as well. So we're going to just dive in with Dr. Yenner. Dr. Yenner, welcome to Free From Feminism. We greatly appreciate you being with us tonight.
1: Well, thanks for having me on and greetings from Idaho to y'all.
0: Oh, my word. That sounds very cold. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's not it's, it's actually not. much nicer than where you live yeah. oh wow well yeah that... boise sits in a boise sits in a valley that keeps it you know it's 40 degrees throughout most of the winter you'll get a couple of days of snow 40s 50s very nice the mountains are very cold
0: but... oh interesting yeah when you think of idaho you think of you know the frigid tundra so that's that's Good. Good for you. Glad to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So just tell us a little bit about yourself to kind of uh, give our audience, if they're not familiar with you already, a little idea of who you are and uh, what your background is.
1: Well, I am a political philosophy Ph.D. from Loyola University, Chicago. I got that in 2000 and I went to New I went to Loyola because I'm a Midwesterner. I'm from Wisconsin. And, uh, and married my wife uh, as we began graduate school in 1993. Uh, when I finished in 2000, we landed the job out here in Boise, and uh, I've lived out here in, uh, and worked at Boise State uh, since then. I have, uh, I've written several books, uh, two of them on the family. My first book was called Family Politics, The Idea of Marriage and Modern Political Thought. That was published in 2010 and then this year uh, the recovery of family life is my fourth book and uh, that uh was pub- both of those books were published at baylor university press so i've gotten into that uh topic uh for a lot of my research and uh and also kind of my vocation uh i have five kids and uh i'm also a, a past chair and still a board member of one of the classical christian schools out here in Meridian, Idaho, and uh, the name of which is uh, the Ambrose School. So those are some of my facts. And uh, um, I got interested in writing on the family and feminism in particular because of the fact that I teach political philosophy. And uh, political philosophy, uh, one of the concepts that I talk about a lot in political philosophy is the concept of nature. And uh, modern thinkers uh, seem to be interested in conquering nature or uh, leaving man's estate, as Francis Bacon said, making themselves lords and masters of nature, uh, as Descartes put it. And uh, and on the other hand, the family seems to be one of these institutions that is most natural in the sense that it's universal and it's responding to primordial needs and uh, reflecting the needs of the body. So I noticed when I was teaching, as I was trying to illustrate what was meant by the idea of nature, I kept having to show how the modern thinkers were confronting the family and remaking it progressively over the course of time, dealing with nature in a thinner way and uh in a more radical way. And uh and that is what my first book, the family politics book, uh is is about. It goes from John Locke to John Paul II. And shows how modern thinkers have an adversarial relationship against the family because they have an adversarial relationship against nature. And this, uh, the second book that we'll talk about later on, is really concerned about <clears throat> what that means here and now. It's the it's the contemporary problem of the family. Uh, the first book was kind of how we got here, and the second book is now what do we do that we're here.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. And you said this this new book um, was just published, correct? recovery. Yeah, came out. Of,
1: yeah, came out in October.
0: OK, wonderful. Everyone go buy it. From what I have read so far, it's it is jam packed with some incredible facts and also obviously just some of Dr. Yenner's opinions, but it's, it's, it's really very interesting specifically the parts on feminism um, and specifically in that with regards to Simone de Beauvoir, just revealing and kind of shocking things that I think um, everyone out there would be very interested in. So thank you for talking about this subject. I, you know, we haven't had a lot of men on the program Specifically, because we can't find many. <laughs> uh, I don't know why that is. Perhaps you can you can enlighten me. But um, it, it's hard to find men who will speak out about this in a more uh, traditional way.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's obviously a handicap uh, being a man talking about feminism. Um, One, uh, PR person once told me, I really love that talk, but it would have been so much better if you were a woman. And, uh, and I, and not only that, but, you know, I'm six, five, uh, I lift weights, so I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not, you know, slight, uh, by any means. (laughs) So I, uh, I, I, but I appreciate that, um, because it's kind of a third rail issue, um, uh. But, you know, I really try to come at it from the perspective of both political philosophy and statesmanship. I mean, feminism is very self-consciously um, and an attempt to create meaning apart from nature. It's really the example of that in modern political thought. And Bourgeois' thought, uh, which I have a whole chapter on in my first book, um, really manifests that tendency in uh, in feminism, you know she famously said that you know what is a woman? she is a womb and that 's what she 's always been considered but but if if through an act of the will human beings and especially women can create themselves, can transcend their nature, can transcend their imminence, to use her term, and, uh, and define themselves can be, it can be a vehicle of self creation. And, and I think that that seed has long been in feminism. And, uh, and so anyone really interested in the radical nature of human autonomy or human self creation should look to feminism as one of the ideologies that really delivers and promises and depends on that ability of human beings to create themselves. And, uh, so I think it's, it's one of the ultimate expressions of modern, late modern thought. So it's very crucial. And it also really affects our politics. So statesmen have to deal with, uh, this powerful ideology and, uh, have to have a good assessment of it. And, uh, so it, it, you know, I, as I say, it's a handicap being one, uh, one of the very few guys that touch this rail. Um, but uh, I find it to be an immensely interesting and important topic for both understanding the human condition and understanding our political situation.
0: I would call it not a handicap. Uh, I would call it um, bravery, <laughs> to be honest. We women uh, who who do not support feminism, Love when men of goodwill will stand there with us because it affects everyone. It affects women. It affects men. It affects children. And it is just, it's really wonderful to hear, um, to hear a, a, Man of goodwill, stand up and, and uh, say something about it. So congratulations. But let's not get uh, ahead of ourselves with Simone de Beauvoir and, and things. I do want to talk about your um, fantastic article in The American Mind uh, earlier this year, I think it was in September, called The False Science of Feminism. The Data is in Women Aren't Happy. And I just devoured this art article because I don't think I've seen another article, a scholarly article, that took data to prove how women are not happy because of feminism. You hear a lot of, which is appropriate, a lot of talk about natures, a lot of talk about feelings, emotions, effects on families, etc. Because that's what it, it is in its essence, is an attack on the family um but one of the very first things that you get when you talk about feminism to people who may not agree with you is they talk about um quantifiable extraneous issues. uh and what i mean by that is the pay gap statistics in stem areas ceo disparities etc. and so it's, it's hard to talk about natures when they're trying to talk about data. So um, it's really quite amazing. I hope everyone can go out there and read it. We're not going to read it uh, in, in totality here tonight, but please do look it up, The False Science of Feminism, um, published in The American Mind. So why did you find it important to write this article? Well,
1: one of the things that I'm doing, uh, Teresa, is, uh, I mean, I'm getting ready to write a third book, and uh, and what I'm trying to do is test the claims made by those who are most intimately involved in the sexual revolution, um, that test the claims that brought about the changes that we have. So, for instance, arguments were made uh, about what would happen if we legalized uh or decriminalized pornography. And uh, those arguments won the day. And now it's been 60 years since those arguments won the day. Uh, let's go back and see who was right. Let's go back and see what uh, both careful observers and, uh, and maybe even social science data can tell us about whether or not the advocates for decriminalization were correct or whether those who uh, thought that it would bring about social decay were correct. And I'm going to do this on several issues. One, uh, the first one being uh, obviously obscenity or pornography, but also contraception, uh, the, the rise of no-fault divorce, uh, the extension of gay rights, and also uh, women's equality in the workplace, and uh, or the claims of feminism. So this uh, article was, you know, is kind of a setup or a beginning. Of the work that I'm going to do uh, testing the claims of the sexual revolution, kind of on a very narrow on a more narrow uh aspect, uh you know, looking at these particular issues instead of taking the whole movement as uh as a piece. So um so that's one of the things that was really motivating me. Um so so you know the conclusion that I draw is that. It is that feminism, like all things, is a mixed blessing. Um, you know, in in one sense, uh, feminism has delivered on its promises. Um, according to the great feminist thinkers of the 60s and 70s, the Friedans, the uh, Millets, the uh, Germaine Greer's, um, the goal of feminism is to get women into the workplace and to find creative work of their own in the workplace as poets or as uh, human resource managers or in high level of uh, corporations or just anywhere. And, uh, and also that women were to be less modest. That is, they were supposed to be more sexually adventurous. All of the feminist thinkers emphasize both of those things. More career oriented and more sexually adventurous. And when you look at the data on those things, you have to show that or you have to say that feminism has moved the needle. Um, when you look at women before 1970, fewer of them worked uh, than work every generation after it. and including when you look at it, uh, women with children. that is, when you just limit yourself to looking at how much women with children under eighteen work, you'll see that it's it's doubled probably about from a third to two thirds of people work outside the home during those years. Um, and same with sexually uh, sexual adventurism, uh, feminism has moved the needle on that stuff. Uh, and women have more sexual partners over the course of their life. Uh, premarital sex is more accepted and expected uh, even. And, and those are victories for feminism. Feminism promised women more independence from marriage. And in a sense, it is delivered more independence from marriage. But the question really has to be asked, is more independence from marriage, is more sexual adventurism something that leads to happiness, that leads to virtue, that leads to the moment when you're dying and you're on your deathbed and you say, I've led a good life. What leads you to say that you've led a good life, that you've been independent or that you've loved and been loved and been happy. And so I tried to uh tried to operationalize uh, as we say in the social sciences uh the the idea of happiness um and the ideas of uh of you know personal fulfillment and just looked at data on the question are women happier are women more depressed uh, do women take more uh more do medic- medicate themselves more um And uh, so I I did my best to try to find the uh, best science on that stuff. And surprisingly, I found that the question isn't asked as much as it really should be. But when the question is asked and when we can get decent and clear answers to it, it shows that women are less happy now. They're more medicated now. They are more prone to commit suicide or attempt suicide now. And uh, there even seems to be a real close relationship between the advances of feminist um, ideology and unhappiness and depression, especially among women, but also it rises among men. So uh, the more traditional the society, the less independent the people are, but generally the happier they are. Well, the more advanced the society, the more independent women, uh, become, but also on the downside, the less happy they are. And, uh, and I think, you know, I can't talk about that stuff from my own experience, but I do think that there are many people and it's very important, uh, for people who observe these things. Uh, to be able to articulate the problems that are caused by not being married, uh, by uh, not being a member of a family or a deep community that shares a life together and uh, how that affects one's happiness, mental health, uh, feeling of belongingness and uh, ability to uh, suffer with another person. Uh, I think those are really crucial things and uh, really they're the key things for human life. And, um, So anyways, I thought testing feminism on Aristotelian grounds, that is whether it has delivered happiness, would be one way that you could um, at least show or start a conversation that feminism is, uh, is not an unmixed good, but rather has significant drawbacks in people's lives.
0: Wow, that is – I'm excited, first of all, that you are – you're continuing this, and this is just going to be part of a several-subject several um, analysis uh, that it will be very interesting to, to see all of that work.
1: Um, yeah, Teresa, it's so interesting what the scientists do about this stuff. They always call it a paradox. Uh, the, the big article on this is called The Paradox of Female Happiness – and the paradox is that as feminism advances and women have more careers and more sexual adventurism, they're unhappy. It's a paradox. And then as women get more career choices and more and are able to practice more sexual adventurism, they attempt suicide more. It's a paradox. It's always a paradox. Um and uh what we really need to, you know, we need to get rid of the paradox and um and just learn to recognize that this is actually sewn into it's it's a feature of feminism and uh and i think that's the best way to begin trying to uh, articulate to young girls why feminism is something they need to be freed from and uh i think there, there are stories and personal experiences that i think have to go into this but those stories can really hang their hat on uh, on the data and the story that you can find in this. It is not an unmixed good.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about um, one of the statistics or the facets of your article you just mentioned that I uh, specifically pulled out because it was so shocking. And maybe during COVID, unfortunately, it's probably gone up, but... Um, Let's see. You said that women are not just less happy after the feminist takeover of our culture. They are more depressed than they previously were. And a 2017 meta-analysis, for instance, finds that about 10% of women are depressed, while only 5% of men are. And the numbers for depressed females could be as high as 22%, where lifetime rates were be, were between 6.3 and 8.6%. That was shocking to me because it is a threefold increase. I believe those statistics were from in the last I think 35 years. So we're n- we're just not as happy as we've been. We are three times more depressed than we <laughs> we have been in the last 30 35 years. That is just, yeah. And you see, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you see, you see this.
1: um, You can see this in in any number of ways. Now, let me, let me like step back here, Teresa, and, and, uh, let you know that, you know, I'm a political philosophy guy. I spend my time with Plato and Aristotle and I teach Dostoevsky. You know, I'm a, I'm a great books guy. And, uh, but I am trained in social science and, uh, I don't do this research myself, but I do collect it. And, uh, and I don't, ever intend to cherry pick anything, Um, but you can see studies. I mean, so this is something I didn't include in that piece, but you can expand on it. If you ask questions about mental health instead of just depression, um, there are recent surveys. There was one by the University of Minnesota uh, that suggested that about 48% of all college undergraduates have, uh, have have mental health issues. So depression is one of those. It's even the lion's share of them, probably over half, according to that survey. Um, have you had a mental health uh, episode in the last seven days, that particular study asks? And the answer was like about 8 to 10% of young ladies and about half that of young men have mental health problems. So, um, so this is something I think it's a grave and gathering problem. And, uh, and I, I do think COVID, you know, accelerates it or exposes it more, but it was there beforehand. And, um, and, you know, it, it's a, it's a great question to ask. And these studies don't ask it. Uh, well, why is it? And I think you have to really, uh, get into human psychology and ask yourself the question, what do human beings need? And what is it that they are not getting? And, uh, and, you know, I think there's a very good, uh, track record for the idea that human beings need some sort of, they need friends. They need unconditional acceptance by another person. They need to have hope that those things can be part of their lives. And if you take those hopes and those realities away from people and especially the younger people, then I think you're going to get more mental health issues, more ideas that their lives are not going to be fulfilled. And that's what yields a, a species of depression. I mean, social science can, can reveal to us, um, what the reality is. And then it's really up to us to try to figure out what, um, what is missing or, or how do we explain that reality? And, uh, and so I think. You know that, that's why social science. That's why I'm a political philosophy guy and not just a social science guy, because I think that data calls out for explanation, and uh, so so focusing only on data is is a long term mistake. That is, I think the, the the fundamental thing that needs to be done is to articulate, you know, the full range of human psychology, so that uh, we can account for the data and give an explanation of it. But yeah, I mean, the depression numbers are pretty depressing, frankly. And, uh, and, uh, I hear anecdotally from my students that things are much worse, that they're isolated from one another. And, um, and there's no real prospects for re- even cultivating friendships. And, uh, and yeah, that's, I think it's a crucial variable, uh, to show some of the, Uh, leakage that happens when feminism succeeds in delivering on its promises.
0: Right. I mean, equality was supposed to be the panacea for everything. It was supposed to fix all the problems women had. And while you're right, I mean, data will never be able to fix anything by itself. It is very helpful to finally have people... Investigating the claims that feminism is making and, and debunking them a little bit. Um, another part of that article I just want to briefly talk about is um, the the portion on sexual promiscuity, um, because one of the, I guess for the third wave feminism more than anything, it started in the second, but is is certainly in, in the third. Um, well. Sexual promiscuity is not that big of a deal. Sexual promiscuity is supposed to, you know, um, set us free and and empower women to, you know, uh, be just like men, but better than men. Uh, you say some studies show that men have a mean of fourteen point four one four partners in a lifetime, while women have seven point one two, which is you know, extremely high, especially if you uh, take that, you know, from 25, 30 years ago. So what would you say to those people who say, well, that's the, that's the whole point of feminism is supposed we are supposed to be liberated to be as sexually promiscuous as as we possibly can.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think they uh, the feminists do think that that is one of the one of the um uh, you know the the, the central commitments or uh, of of their ideology, um, and you know I think I, mean, I I I guess I would take a step back and just and try to think about what this tells us about the man and the woman, and uh, and feminism wants to say that there is no natural difference between men and women on any of these questions on the number of partners, the uh, expectation of an enduring relationship after sex, situating sex within an enduring relationship. But the evidence has never been there. Now, that is to say, there's always this skewed marketplace. Women are the gatekeepers of sexual behavior. They may keep the gate differently than they used to, but they still keep the gate. They're, They're still making the decision as to how much sex will be had. And uh, and and I think, you know, like you can give good data on all of that stuff. Uh, Feminists say, well, the reason women are depressed uh, and especially women who have a lot of sexual partners are more depressed and more likely to commit suicide is because there are still lingering effects of the patriarchal culture that are shaping their views and making them feel guilty about what they have done. So they can look at the data and it confirms everything they have to say. Uh, and I would push back and simply say, something that's universal, like this difference, is not due to patriarchy, it's due to nature. And uh, and the more we come to recognize that men and women are different uh, when it comes to the quantity and quality of their sexual desires, the more we can build institutions that try to uh, match up the particular uh, uh, proclivities of the of the man and the woman, and that is what marriage has always been. So, uh, feminism looks at marriage and sees a cage, and uh, and hopes to liberate human beings from that cage and expects them, I think, to be happy at the end of the day, but. I think it's best to see as a kind of channel, and, uh, and the channel uh, leads men and women along their different paths, but together so that we can uh, seek to satisfy the, uh, the passions of each. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a constant in human life, and uh, it's unlikely to be the cause of an invention. So it's something you have to deal with instead of something that you have to dismiss. And feminism has, uh, feminists have a tendency to bury their head in the sand uh, when it comes to counter evidence like that. And to simply say that the counter evidence is the effects of lingering patriarchal socialization. And, And anyways, I think without getting feminists off that position, no progress can ever be made in uh, in freeing women from feminism.
0: Yeah, absolutely. When you create that tension, that competition between the sexes, that unnatural tension within the sexes, but also within their own nature, as you so eloquently said, yeah, that that um, that requires a higher power, higher power to fix. <laughs> um, yes.
1: Yeah,
0: but well, let's talk. Uh, let's pivot a little bit and talk about your new book, because, um, like I mentioned to you earlier today, I feel like we could have a mini series about just these <laughs> two chapters in your book because they are 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 just jam packed with information, um, really revealing information. And again, I I'm beating this drum, but information. I've never seen before. I'm, I'm, you know, head into this material as often as I can. And I had no idea some of the things you say about and not say about Simone de Beauvoir, but what she said in her own words is just incredible. And it reinforced in my mind, at least, that we can talk about first wave feminism, second wave, third, as perhaps historical realities, you know, this date, this happened, this date, that happened. But what she talks about in 1950 is going on in 2020. It, it was really very interesting. So um, if you just get that book just for, for that section, please do get it. But let's go, let's start at the beginning um, of, of your feminism section. Um and you talk about retail feminism versus radical feminism. What is the distinction in your mind there? And is radical feminism just, you know, the natural destination of retail feminism?
1: Yes. All right. Well, that's, that's a can of worms that we're going to have to open up here, Teresa. Because um, I think that's actually one of the most difficult things, um, I don't know, to buy in my overall argument um, is what I try to do in the book is just allow um, the critics of marriage, uh, both feminism, contemporary liberalism, and sexual liberation theory speak for themselves and tell us what it is they want. What would the world, what would marriage, what would family life look like if you could give the feminist a magic wand and allow her to wave it and she gets the world. And, um, and so I try to um uh, articulate that really grounded in the core tax of the greatest feminist thinkers, of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and 80s, really, and uh, in that particular chapter. And uh, and the problem is that the core of feminism, and we'll call it the radical core of feminism, is, I'm going to say, a simple set of proposals. One they want to put an end to what they call patriarchal socialization, and what they mean by that is that there are difference, any differences between men and women, especially differences that redound to the uh, are negative for women, uh, must be traceable to some sort of socialization or education that needs to be removed. All right. So, end patriarchal socialization. Pillar one. Pillar two is to secure the economic and emotional independence of women from the family. And that requires not only working, so they'll be economically independent, but also no children in the family because otherwise women might feel responsible for raising them. So second pillar, economic emotional independence. The third pillar of radical feminism is the end to all sexual taboos. So not only those taboos that seem to be connected to monogamous marriage, things like uh, don't have sex before marriage or Sex is generally heterosexual, but also things like, and uh, you'll have to pardon me for, uh, uh, you know, but but things like incest and childhood sexuality, all of sex needs to be liberated from any familial or long-term context and made something that is just another physical activity without any special significance. So the third pillar, end sexual taboos. Now, you never hear any practical feminist, practical politician walking around and saying, what we need is to end patriarchal socialization. And we need to secure the emotional economic independence of all women and maybe their children. And we need to end all sexual taboos. No one speaks as a radical feminist, Mm -hmm. but everyone speaks as a retail feminist. And what what I mean by that is they're trying to sell it. They're trying to sell the latest, uh, the next role in the feminist revolution. So we need national daycare. That'll secure secure more economic independence for women. We need to um, end the taboo against transgender sex and identity. That will help us put an end to all sexual taboos. We need to get more women in STEM that will is perceived as something that attacks the lingering effects of patriarchal socialization. So retail feminists are selling radical feminists on a smaller le- scale, a smaller level. And, but since there is never any articulated amount of Uh, sex difference that they would accept or dependence that they would accept or sexual restraint that they would accept. Retail feminists are just helping radical feminism achieve its goals. Even sometimes they don't even know they're doing it um, because they're very involved in the next thing. But since, and here's the key, I think, Teresa, since there is no limiting principle No point at which a retail feminist could say, yes, now I'm satisfied. We can close up shop. Feminism has achieved its goals. Let's turn out the lights and go home. Since there is no limiting principle, retail feminism bleeds into and serves the cause of radical feminism. So I once had a paper that was published at the uh, uh at Heritage Foundation called Sex, Gender and the Origin of the Culture War. And you know, it was just an account of what Simone de Beauvoir says uh, and and Shulamith Firestone says about what the goals of uh feminism are and it was, you know, sent up for review and one of the people came back and it's a very common sense objection and said, "You know, I know a lot of feminists and none of them ever talk about abolishing the family." And and he's right. They don't talk about it. But the question is, why not? <laughs> um, is it because it is too early for that reform or because they want to preserve the reform? And I would suggest that uh, ultimately, when you scratch a retail feminist, you have to get a, a radical feminist because they cannot articulate why they would want to keep something that restrains um, the human will from accomplishing those pillars of radical feminism.
0: Do you see the latest uh, social movements, such as those promulgated by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, movements that just popped up this summer, which expressly talk about the abolishing of the nuclear family? Do you think that that is more of a movement towards embracing the radical feminism instead of the retail feminism? Um, or is this just a fleeting?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think uh, th- those are very radical movements, right? Uh, you're talking about the Black Lives Matter manifesto, which uh, came out against the whole heteronormative family. And, uh, and yeah, I do think that that, uh, that movement is part of what makes radical feminism, this great modern aspiration for, uh, human liberation from restraints, no limits, as I say in the book, throughout the book. And, uh, and yeah, so I, I, I think there is not even that much distance ultimately between, um, between a radical movement, revolutionary movement like that. And the radical feminists of, uh, of the late sixties. I think they, the feminists would sign up and, uh, and recognize, uh, BLM as a kind of ally. And they, they really spring from the same soup. You know, they, they, they both spring from what is now, you know, called critical race theory, but you know, you could call it just critical theory. And that's the view that, um, that our character, is shaped, um, not necessarily by laws, but by the subtle institutions of culture, uh, apart from nature. And, uh, and And Blacks are made to be what Blacks are because of white culture. Women are made to be what women are because of patriarchal culture. It's the same analysis. And it's even the same ideology um, the disparities that are caused by this supposed patriarchal oppression or white supremacist oppression are traceable to discrimination. And any disparity needs to be kind of uh, wiped out uh, or made equal. And in the individuals, uh, as the account goes, made whole uh, because they've been misshaped by that dominant culture. So yeah, I do think that both of them spring from the same source.
0: Well, another one of these big movements um, that we have not yet talked about, which uh, you you talk about at length in in your book, is gender ideology. You have a, a really interesting quote, but perhaps we should just ask you what the tie is between feminism and gender ideology first, and then I'll get to the quote. So what what to you is the tie between feminism of any sort and gender ideology does one lead to the other
1: yeah um that's been one of those uh questions that i kind of go back and forth on and uh the the book i'm not going to say is confused on this question because i don't think it's confused but i think it there there's a sense in which it doesn't resolve the question um so so let's define each of these things what is feminism uh the the way I would define it is uh, is that our bodies do not determine our identity, or our identity is formed actually independently of our bodies. Uh, or to put that in just simpler terms, there's a separation between sex, that is our body, and gender, that is our ideas of the body. And and To what end, why do we separate sex from gender or the body from identity? For feminists, the goal is independence. So we separate sex from the body so we can now make our identity, all right? So the goal is individual independence. The One of the tools that is used to achieve that goal is the separation of sex from gender or body from identity. Now, Gender identity, uh, and, you know, I'm just going to use different words here. I don't know that I ever use gender identity as a term, uh, but I'm just going to say transgenderism, is the view that our identity is independent of our body. And, uh, and so it shares that goal or that, I should say, tool with feminism. We can make our gender independently of what our body says. That's what feminism had said. So in that sense, I think gender ideology or transgenderism grows out of a tool that is prominent in the feminist toolbox. But there are also feminists that criticize transgenderism and I think they do it because the tool of separating sex and gender was about establishing the independent woman. And the goal of transgenderism is to suggest that there is no such thing as woman. So there are some feminists uh, who, uh, who criticize transgenderism because it seems to undermine the, uh, the idea of what the goal of feminism should be. But the irony is, is that the transgender activists use a prominent toolkit, a tool from the feminist toolkit against that goal of feminism. I hope that makes sense. Um, so I do think gender ideology or transgenderism grows out of feminism, but the story is complicated because it grows out of a means that is essential to feminism. And that feminists can't like, and feminists have a tough time defending themselves against transgender people, because, uh, or I should say, those who claim they are transgender, they have a tough time because the transgender, the people who say they're transgender, are using a tool from the fem, feminist toolkit, mm-hmm. and uh, and so um, so anyways, I think that's uh, that that's how they're related. Uh, the, the, the piece that I wrote for Heritage on that is what I talked about before: sex, uh, sex, gender, and the origin of the culture war. Which was really an attempt to ask where did transgenderism come from and uh, and I tried to show its feminist roots and therefore to show how um, uh, feminists would really have a tough time defending themselves against uh, such a gender ideology
0: so the the quote that I that Talks about what we we are discussing right now. Second wave feminists aim to liberate women's characters from their bodies and to take women beyond the socially constructed gender supposedly grounded in the sexed human body. That's that's I, I think what you were just talking about. So but why why should we care about that? So for if if we were to talk to um, a transgender person, a theoretical transgender person, you hear the the argument a lot. Why can't I just be me? You know, I'm not affecting you. I'm not affecting your family. I'm not. You know, and and some of them are more radical of you must accept me. But some of them, like we got with, I, I vividly remember with gay marriage. You know, we just want. To live our lives, we don't want to ruin your lives. We just want to live ours, and then it, you know, it, it slowly increases in our society to to what it is now. So, what would you say to critics who, who would say the same about transgender ideology? Why will this ever affect society at large? Has it already, and why should we care?
1: All right. Well, that's it's a great question, and it's one we need an answer to. Uh, unfortunately, the answer is a little complicated. Um, and uh, so let me try to uh, let me try to give you the skeleton of an answer. I think um, so. So there is no easy way to translate sex to gender. And what I mean by that is, uh, what it, uh, se- uh, male is sex, female is sex, but masculine and feminine are gender. Each society gives us an idea of what a man should be. So Spartan society says men should be soldiers. American society says that they should be uh, entrepreneurs maybe. Or, um, uh, But each of them are kind of building on the natural basis for what a man is. And the same thing would go with women, So, uh, you know, uh, Over the course of time, society imagines what it is to be a woman, and that's a kernel of truth, I think, that is in feminism. Society translates male and femaleness for everyone, and our first experience of what it means to be male and female comes from what our society tells us about what it is to be a male and a female. Okay. Now, I think that that's true, and as I say, that's an inch or more than an inch that I would give to feminist ideology, although I don't think Plato would disagree. That's just another way of saying we live in a cave and we get our first experience of life from opinions. But the opinions really matter. The opinions are not arbitrary. How society imagines what it is to be a man and a woman has almost everything to do with whether or not society itself will continue, or men and women will be happy, fulfilled, capable of virtue, capable of taking on responsibilities. So it is a very important political institution to determine how we imagine what man and woman are to be. If society, and and, and I should say those opinions need to be linked to the long-term health of the political community and the individuals that make up a part of the political community. And the ideology of transgenderism and feminism, really, they both teach something. They both teach us how male and female or whatever should manifest themselves in society, but they don't link that to a genuine account of the long-term health of the political community or the individuals that make it. Societies make gender. And the way societies imagine gender, enforce gender, will have tons to do with whether or not that society will survive and the people within it will be happy. This is what we were talking about earlier when it came to feminism. Feminism imagines what it is to be a woman, and it has not led to great happiness, and in fact has led in a lot of cases to the opposite. Transgenderism, there's no long-term studies on this that we can cite, but I think we know that it will have the same fate as feminism when it comes to these questions of the long-term happiness, stability, and um Fulfillment of the individuals that adopt it and the society that adopts it. So conservatives, in my view, have to recognize that society shapes the way we imagine what it is to be a man and a woman. And we have to be very invested in responsible articulations of what it is to be a man and a woman for the, for the long term health of uh you know our civilization
0: absolutely you know since we we're a strongly catholic podcast our my answer to that would be god gave us natures (laughs) god gave us natures and so that that is the answer to that is is god made us masculine made us feminine and that comes with beautiful responsibilities, beautiful characteristics, beautiful duties and honors that come with each that that are complementary to one another. If, if we don't bring it back to to the fact that God made us this way <laughs> in a word, uh, to me, we, we won't get very far.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the question is, I mean, I, I agree with that. Uh, We will, it's two questions. Will we respect and acknowledge a created order? Will we respect and acknowledge a natural order? Those two questions are really closely connected. And, um, and in a way, I'm saying that no political community can ignore nature and survive. And that is, you know, a great, um, a great testament to the idea that that order is created and sustained by uh by God above um because uh because if you flaunt it you die and uh and so I do think that's exactly what's at stake on this there's a great chapter in uh um John Paul II's love and responsibility on respect for the created order And how ultimately the whole family policy boils down to what your attitude toward nature is. Is there something in nature that you can respect, venerate and stand in awe of, or must you always be setting about conquering it? And if you're, you know, and that's the power of Babel, right? That's the idea that we can ourselves be gods. And, um, so I do think that, uh, that you're right to see that issue in the issue of of gender ideology.
0: That was really well put, Dr. Yanner. Thank you for that. You know, we just have a couple more minutes. I want to respect your time as much as I can. But I'm very interested, um, a little more of a personal question. You are a professor um, out there in Idaho, I believe at Boise State, you said. Correct me if I'm wrong. And you were talking about some very controversial issues. I am very interested to know how, how that's working on the ground for you, um, specifically with regards to feminism, and how it affects men in college, specifically. Um, and I guess the reason behind my my asking you that is we have a lot of college age um, women listeners and I feel like it would be really helpful to hear the effects maybe if you have any, if you have any examples that you can give us of, of um, perhaps the damage that feminism has done, or even just an anecdotal story.
1: Yeah. Um, so I, I, recently was asked uh, to, provide a list of the top 10 books on family and manhood uh, for a particular website it's not yet done but I uh, not yet up but it's done and uh, number one on my list was a book by George Gilder uh, that was published in the early 70s in the immediate aftermath of the great radical books of early feminism uh, and the name of the book is called sexual suicide perhaps you've heard of it Um, uh, it was republished in the early nineties, uh, under the name, I'm sorry, I got to look, turn around. I think it's men in marriage. Um, and, uh, and the argument of Gilder's book is that feminism is sexual suicide for men. (laughs) Uh, feminism will be bad for men. And the reason for that is that according to Gilder, and I think this is true, you can find this pretty easily, uh, sexual, uh, Feminism encourages sexual liberation among women. It stigmatizes the idea of uh, the man should be a provider and encourages women, in fact, to be independent. And both those things, uh, when you add them together, Gilder said, would be disastrous for men. Men would lose their ability to commit to something, to be responsible. Um, they would lose the discipline that uh, conforming to uh, the, the rhythms of biology forces them to have, because contraception is one of the things that feminism wants and demands for its uh, practice of sexual liberation. So, you know, so he is very stark. Sexual suicide is what feminism causes. And, uh, and so how would, how would you see that? Well, you would see it over the course of time in less impressive guys. Um, They, you know, they perform worse in school. They are less able and apt to uh, put themselves out on the line uh, and ask girls out. Um, That you would see it in some of the guys getting a lot of uh, sexual action on Saturday night and a lot of other guys not. And, uh, and and I would say that that description that Gilder gives in sexual suicide is something that I think is borne out in my observations of my students uh, here. That is, uh, over the course of time, as the culture becomes more feminist, men are, in a way, more disposable, uh, less needed for any of these uh, uh, really... Uh, activities like marriage that connect them to eternity, that connect them to posterity. And without that kind of motivation, without putting that at the center of what you're going to do, your uh, list of possible ways of living your lives or things that you could dedicate yourself to are uh, it's just shorter. And it's difficult for most people of middling capacity really to imagine what it is that they could dedicate their lives to without uh, family and marriage being at the center of it. So I, I do think that, you know, I mean, I'm I'm not going to give you any particular examples here, Teresa, unfortunately, but it's something that I can see in, uh, you know, that, that has developed over the last generation uh, since I've been teaching. And I talked to other uh, faculty members from different universities, and they, all of us really kind of are seeing the same thing. And, um, so it was predicted there by, uh, by Gilder. My advice to your young girls, uh, and ladies who are listening, uh, to the, your, your podcast is buy some guy sexual suicide and, uh, and, and, uh, or encourage people to read it. It's a book that really helps explain the listlessness that uh, has come over, I would say, American males in a way that it hadn't before. And uh, it's a direct byproduct of feminism. I won't say that it was an intended byproduct of feminism because I don't think they have much of an account of what it will be like to be a man. Uh, but Gilder really diagnosed uh, the way feminism would have a negative impact on male ambition and responsibility. That's my number one book. That's my number one book, that uh, very accessible book for people to read um, when it comes to understanding marriage and family life in the modern world. Except my book, Teresa, of course. My book is number (laughs) one, but I can't do that. Modesty requires.
0: Well, obviously. Obviously. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, We're right at an hour now. We could talk with Dr. Yener for hours about his research and his study on these subjects. I think we're going to call it a night uh, to respect his time. So, Dr. Yener, thank you so very much for sharing your time with us this evening. You are so right on on so many of these things, and we are really honored to have you on, um, and hopefully you will grace us with your presence uh, again soon.
1: I'd be happy to do it, Teresa. Thank you for having me, and I'll, I'll meet your compatriot next time.
0: That sounds great. And let's just make sure to um, get your book's name in there one last time. It is The Recovery of Family Life, Exposing the Limits of Modern Ideologies. And can everyone get that on Amazon?
1: It is, yeah. It, you, you, you could go, go through our website, yennerbook.com. And uh, you can get it for a little cheaper, too, so I'm always looking for a bargain.
0: Okay, Yennerbook.com, and that's Y-E-N-O-R. And then also check out the article that we talked about first, The False Science of Feminism, uh, and that's found uh, AmericanMind.org. So thank you again, Dr. Yenner, and uh, we will see you again for another episode uh, very soon.